Welcome to The Other Side of Wall Street with your host, Ron Harrison. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Other Side of Wall Street. My name is Ron Harrison. I'll be your host each week. And for those of you that don't know me, I am a full-time trader. I trade every day. I trade for a living. And I have probably been trading uh, since about 1989-1990. So I have uh, quite a bit of experience under the belt. And hopefully each week I will be sharing that with you. I am um, a member of The Other Side of Wall Street, which is the name of the show. And it's also who is bringing you this show. And my goal each week is going to be to take you on an educational journey, let's say. Let me look at it kind of as uh, the show is going to be a book. And each week will be a new chapter in that book, each one building upon the week before. So it's not going to be a series of just random shows talking about different subjects each week. Each week will, like I say, build on what we learned in the prior week. So this is really going to be an educational show uh, on, above anything else but also at the same time teaching you how to trade properly and hopefully will increase your profits, reduce your risk, and uh, make you a better trader. So with that said, let's get into uh, more of my journey since that's how I really want to uh, present all of this information. And my journey is I have I was interested in the stock market since early childhood before I even really knew what it was. I remember as a kid, I used to go on my, my father's restaurant at lunch uh, lunch break from school, and I would stand by the radio and listen to the uh, crop reports. It was a rural community. And I guess back those days, those crop reports were kind of the uh, uh, precursor of today's futures reports for agriculture. But I was fascinated with them. And then even after that, I remember as I got older, I would look at the uh, newspapers and look at the stock reports. And I'd, I'd look at those pages again, not, not even knowing what I was looking at. But I was looking at them nonetheless because I just knew somewhere there's opportunity, there's money there to be made. I didn't know how, but I just sensed it was there. And then any time a movie, TV show, anything that had to do with, with finance, investing, the stock market... Boy, I was glued to that screen. I mean, I, I that was just something that I was so, so attracted to. And that's how I started. So uh, I went off, went to college, uh, got a degree in engineering, nothing, nothing at all to do with the stock market. Uh, left there, uh, pursued that, uh, that degree, ended up uh, starting and building my own electronics company. Uh, eventually sold that, had a decent amount of money in my pocket. And I said, now's the time, and I hopped in the car, and I, at the time I was in uh, out in the west in Utah, and I headed to New York, headed to Manhattan. I'm heading to the stock market. I'm heading to Wall Street. So uh, arrived. Uh, when I got there, first thing I did, next day was uh, get the newspaper, start looking at the help wanted ads, and sure enough, uh, you look in there, and there was literally column after column of stockbroker, stockbrokers wanted, uh, however they worded it. And uh, so I called a few, uh, took, made a few interviews, and ended up uh, getting hired by a firm in New Jersey, a small firm. And what I want to start out saying at this point is, is that at that, at least in that part of, uh, of the world, it appeared that in order to get a job as a stockbroker, Pretty much the only qualification 
was you had to have a pulse. You had to be breathing. Other than that, you're hired. So I was hired because I had a pulse. I was breathing. And, uh, of course, the first thing you had to do before you could actually start working was you had to get your Series 7 license, which required taking a pretty intensive course, uh, passing a pretty intensive test, and uh, then you'd get your license and you'd be off and running, which that I did, took the course, passed the test, had my license, got back to the firm, first day at work, there I was, stockbroker. Now, first thing I want to say to you is that when, uh, and actually this is more targeted to those of you that have probably been cold called, maybe while you're having dinner in the evening, something, by someone, a stockbroker, someone you never heard before, someone you don't know, calling you up, trying to interest you in buying some kind of investment, stock, something. I'm sure it's all happened to many of you. So let me say this, that in order to be, as I said, in order to be a stockbroker, you have to pass your Series 7 and get the license. Nowhere in that course is there a single word mentioned about how to read a chart, how to research a company, how to look at any kind of, of technical information on a company, on a chart, on pricing, how to look at the S&P, how to and how to do anything that would involve actually researching an investment that you might want to recommend to the person that you're going to cold call. Nothing. The only thing that in those courses really are legalities, uh, what to say, what not to say, make sure you don't get the firm in trouble, make sure you don't do something wrong. Um, a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of legal mumbo-jumbo, let's say. Uh, it's needed, of course, because you, you don't want to say and do the wrong thing. You get the firm in trouble. But my point is is that when you're cold called by these so-called stockbrokers and they're trying to sell you something, and I'm sure you've all heard the, the speeches, hello, Mr. So-and-so, uh, my name is whatever. I have this great investment for you. I've done the research this is blah, blah, blah. This is what the company's doing. This is where it's going. This is, you got to get in now. You know, the whole sales pitch thing. Trust me, when those people call you, they have no clue what they're saying. I was calling. I had no clue what I was saying. I had, a, there was a room full of people. They were all calling. They had no clue what they were saying. And how it works is that in a, in a brokerage firm, sometimes daily, sometimes every other day, sometimes weekly, whatever, you're called in, all the brokers are called into a room and they pass out what's called a call sheet. And that sheet, maybe one, maybe two, three, whatever, are sheets that the brokers need to use to push a specific stock. So what has happened is the brokerage firm has taken a position in that XYZ stock and now it's the broker's job to push that out the door and sell it, just like any other retail business. Just like if you work at Walmart and they got a new shipment of t-shirts in, and now they want all their salespeople to push these t-shirts out. Same thing. So you're given these call sheets. You call up, I don't know, I would think I was probably calling, I was five, 600 people a day. I mean, I was on the phone constantly, all day and all evening. And you call these people and you literally read the words off the sheet. It's all scripted. You have no idea what you're talking about. So I just want you to know that when you get these calls from these so-called brokers who they who want they want you to put your trust in them to make you some money, they have no clue. 
So that's the first thing. So that was that was my job for a while. So I did that, I don't know, a year maybe at this particular firm. And it really, it, the, the, the longer I stayed there, the more I saw about how the, how the whole game worked. And what I mean by that is, is let's say the company has a large position in a certain stock. So they start pushing the stock out. All of their brokers, and a lot of these firms had hundreds of brokers sitting at the table uh, selling the same thing. So imagine that if you have hundreds of brokers pushing the same stock out, basically what you end up getting is a flood of buying for this particular stock. And as we all know, you have more buying than you have selling. That causes the price of the stock to go up. So as, the, as these firms are pushing and pushing this particular stock or stocks, handful of stocks maybe, uh, prices start to rise. So now the brokers, when they call, have a little ammo under the belt because they can say the stock is up so much this week, today, whatever. You got to get in now. It's moving. It's moving. Well, it's moving because all of their brokers are pushing the same stock. And it's, it's, it's a one-way trip at that point. It's all buy orders and almost virtually no sell orders. So they, in other words, manipulate the price of the stock. I mean, the stock is getting higher, but it's, it's, it's manipulated up for the purpose of attracting more buyers. So one gets the other. And that can only last for so long. And I watched this happen. And it up, 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 up it went until the firm unloaded all of its shares of stock to the public. Then the game was over. Then the, the push stopped. Then the new call sheets were handed out and we went off to a different stock. And the people that had bought this original stock that we're talking about was left to hold the bag. So and now there was no more buying. So now, guess what happens? Sell orders start coming in and the stock starts falling. But the firm doesn't care because they've unloaded their supply and now it's up to the public to fare for themselves. Now we're off selling something else. So like I said, I did that for about a year. And uh, I just, it just, it was, I couldn't take it anymore. It, it's, it just bothered me to be even doing that. So I uh, went to a different firm. Actually, uh, several of us at this firm left at the same time and went to this same particular firm. This firm was in Manhattan, and it specialized in IPOs, initial public offerings. In other words, when a company wants to go public, these kind of firms are the ones they go to to actually put the whole deal together and take them public. So that sounded fun. So I uh, went there, got to know uh, how the thing works. And uh, actually, one of the companies that we took public, you guys might know about or hear about it. It was called Pure Water, P-U-R, Water. It's a water purification system and like for kitchens and so on. And uh, we actually took them public, and I think they're still around. Most of the other companies that we took public, I doubt are even still around anymore, but who knows. But uh, at least that one I can remember. But in this case... Um, it seemed to be a little more legit, more fun. These are new new companies, new things. But remember I said before in the first firm, they would take a large position in that in whatever stock they were pushing until they could dump the whole thing onto the public. Well, at the at this new firm, at the at the IPO firm, that's not the name, that's what they did. Um, there, when you take a company public, you have the entire float if you're doing it yourself. And these firms, this particular firm was doing everything themselves. So they would have 100% of the shares of the stock to put out to the public or to place. So in other words, they had total control. So 
in this, I think we probably had 600 brokers, five, 600 brokers in that, in, in the, on the floor at that point. So a company would come in, we would do the research, we would go out and meet with them, uh, put the whole deal together, uh, get it ready for, for, the, for the IPO day, and uh, off we would go. So again, as with the first firm, with, and now with this firm, all the brokers would get busy on the phone and start pushing the stock out. Uh, piping it up, trying to sell it. Uh, again, now we have 100% of the float. So of course, since all these brokers are pushing the same stock, the price is going to start moving rapidly. So the more it starts moving, the more, more ammo we have to get people in, tell them it's moving fast, you're going to miss it if you don't, don't get in now. So that worked fine. Uh, we made some good money. But again, once the, once the, the initial push was done, the stock was left to fare on its own. And many times, if the stock didn't have uh, enough going on within the company itself, the product, and so on, it once the push of the the sell push was over, the stock would just slowly start drifting south. But anyway, uh, this went on for a while. A lot of companies coming through. We took a lot of them public until one day we were taking, and I can't remember which company this was that we that we were working on at the time, but uh, we had ran the price up. Uh, probably put most of the stuff out there, most of the shares. And one of my clients uh, called me and wanted to get out of the stock, or at least I think she wanted to take some profit. I think she was buying, getting ready to buy a house, wanted to cash some stuff in, create some some free cash. So she asked me to sell some. So in those days, that was before you could just do it on the computer. You had to actually write a ticket, take the ticket to the over to the window and put it in and place the seller. I did that, and I was told, no, we're not taking sell orders. And of course, that is illegal, but nonetheless, I was told no. And I was also told, you go tell your client whatever you have to tell them, but for now, we're not taking sell orders. We'll, we'll let you know when, when we'll take sell orders, but it's not yet. So I had to go back, I had to call her and tell her, uh, I forget what I told her, but uh, at that point, I was, Again, done with this world. I was done being just a broker. Two out of two, and neither one's working. So I, I pretty much told her that I could not put her order in, and that I was probably going to leave the be leave, probably be my last day at the firm. I was, I was out. There might have been another day after that, but I was soon gone. I couldn't do this anymore. So I told her to do whatever she had to do, but I couldn't get a sell order in. So uh, I'm done. Well. I think they picked the wrong person to do that too. Or of course, of course, they didn't pick a person. The person just happened to be the the wrong person at the right time. But this girl, uh, lady, was actually a producer for 60 Minutes. So I told her to do whatever she had to do, and I I can only guess what she did with the power she had to do to do things uh, because of the connection to the show. So uh, after that, I was gone. So. And now I'm out of my second brokerage job, and I'm done with being a broker. So at this point, let's uh, let me back up a bit and explain to you what was going on at that point. So when a company goes public, and when the firm takes the company public, there is a period of time. It's called a lockdown, to where the insiders cannot sell their stock because the you don't they the SEC wants to make sure that as a company is going public and in this new in this early period that they don't dump their own shares and just 
to the public and take and just get out while the getting's good. So there's a period there where they can't get out. Well, as it turns out, the company I worked for, they themselves were taking positions in the companies they were taking public. And that also is illegal. But at the time, what you would do is, uh, it was a lot of this was going on back then, is they would take and they would purchase, when the thing went public, they would purchase large blocks of shares for, let's say, a friend or uh, someone, someone not in the firm, but someone who they trusted to hold the shares for them and give them the money, you know, sell the shares, give them the money somewhere down the road. In other words, I think back then they were calling those people rat holes. It was the, the term they used for those people. But in other words, they would just stuff these shares down a rat hole and come back later and retrieve them. And so that way the firm, the, the principles of the firm were not actually holding the stock, but really they were because they were being held by a trusted friend. So when it came time for my client to take a sell order, it wasn't just her. They weren't taking sell orders from anybody. And the reason being is because they did not want any selling to happen before their rat hole people got to sell their shares. So they wanted to make sure that, that the price got up as high as it could, that their people got out first at the at top dollar, and then who cares what happens to the rest of it? Then then it can be a, a flood of selling for all they care. Price would plummet. They didn't care anymore. They made their money. The firm made the, the, the company they took public had made their money. The brokerage firm had made their money. Their rat hole people had made the money, which ultimately went to the principal owners of the company. And everybody was happy except for the public who had bought the stock. And then it was up to them to fare. Hopefully, they didn't lose too much. So that's how that worked at that point. And a lot of firms were doing that. And actually, to change the subject a teeny bit, if you remember, uh, there's a movie out called The called the Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, Stratton Oakmont was the name of the company. Jordan Belfort was the, the owner. True story. Everything that happened was true, but the movie and the book was kind of written as factual, true, it is factual, but more as a comedy. Uh, but a lot of that was going on there. It was depicted in the movie, and that was it's true. It was actually, the, that thing took place, the Wolf of Wall Street uh, story took place exactly the same time that I was there, that I'm telling you the story. So it's paralleling. And also, uh, after they were uh, taken down, taken out of business, uh, one of the stockbrokers that worked for Stratton Oakmont uh, decided to write a screenplay or write a story, uh, ended up being a screenplay, about what went on at Stratton Oakmont. Uh, except when he wrote, and this one, this particular guy wrote it in a more serious fashion. And that also became a movie called Boiler Room. So if you, I would recommend those two movies, watch Boiler Room. And Boiling Room will, is almost, I mean, it is so factual and so authentic and so real. It's, it's scary. So uh, if you want to really see what was going on at the same time and see what was going on with the firm I was at, uh, watch Boiler Room. Perfect. It's almost, it's, to me, even though it's a movie with a lot of big name stars, to me it's more like a documentary. Uh, the things that went on, I mean, they were it, it, they're so dead on with, with how they showed, you know, the same thing, not taking sell orders, waiting till the end so their, their people can get out first, um, totally manipulating the stock. And, and, and it's things like this that was going on during all that time, all that period, that uh, it, it, it's turned my stomach 
to the whole to the whole mess. So anyway, so I am I am out of there. I am stockbrokering is not for me. It's it's the worst job in the world. I always tell people that when you're a stockbroker, you spend your days and evenings calling people you don't know, trying to sell things, to sell them things they don't want. So uh, it's just it's just a lousy way to make a living, and uh, and I wanted no more of it. But I wasn't done with the stock market yet. I, I still knew that there's a better way. And the reason being is, is that both of these two firms that I was at, there was a place, a, you know, the first place it was behind a big glass window, second place it was a, a different floor, a different room. But there was always a place where their firm, the firm had their own traders and those traders were trading the firm's money. They weren't trying to sell junk to the public. They were, they were doing serious stuff with real stocks making real money and i always knew that that was probably where the money is and that's where i should be that's that's what i had in the back of my mind all along i just didn't know what it was so i had made some friends that were traders at the first firm that i was at they had long since left and gone on to other places and i had kept in touch with them so i looked at the, I, I looked them up and uh I, I got in touch with them, and lo and behold, I was off to the second chapter of my uh, stock market career. At this point, I want to take a break and be back in a few minutes. Here's another look into the world of trading. Let's talk about zero-sum games for a minute. As we know, the markets are a zero-sum game, but it's not the only one. A couple of other well-known zero-sum games are the Las Vegas casinos and the state lotteries. And we all know our chances of making money in either of these venues are next to nothing. But if you think about it, someone makes money each and every time, and that's the house or the state. And the stock market industry is no different. The brokerage firms are the house, and you are left being the gambler. The brokerage houses makes money 80 to 90% of the time on every trade they make. Now what if we told you that you could trade as the house and give yourself that same 80 to 90% chance of winning on every trade you place while all the while keeping your account mostly in cash? Call us at the other side of Wall Street at 949-734-1698 and let us show you how. Again, that's 949-734-1698 Let's make some money. Okay, we're back. The other side of Wall Street. And in the first half, uh, we spent some time talking about, uh, let's say, my, the first chapter of my uh, initiation to the world of Wall Street. And uh, just try to show you based on my experience just how lopsided and how rigged the market is uh, against the retail investor just how much the odds are stacked against you how how the brokerage firm manipulates prices how they try to sell you things that that are really uh, junk let's just say but uh, next time you get cold called by a uh, someone a broker you don't know my advice is hang up so anyway, as we stated, uh, I had left the brokerage part of the journey, and now I had uh, gotten myself a job as a trader. Uh, now, working as a trader, in, at least in this first uh, firm that I was with, 
uh, I started learning the ropes of, of really of how to analyze things, of how to read charts, of how to look at numbers, how to read the tape, let's say. And uh, but at the same time, it was still uh, I was trading every day, all day. But it was it was in the in the uh, sense of uh, how maybe you guys would trade at home, just purely buying and selling stocks. And I was also trading uh, partly my own money. And the way this firm worked, you put up. Uh, you know, let's say $25,000 of your own money and they would give you 75000 of theirs to put on with that. So you basically have 100000 to trade with. And then uh, whatever profits you made, uh, you got to keep a certain percentage of the profits. And if you had losses, the losses totally came out of your 25000 that you put up or whatever that number was. So you were responsible for all the losses, but you got to keep a percentage of the gains. So in that, uh, I, I, learned, I learned how to trade, I learned how to read the charts and so on, and it was working pretty well. But at the same time, that's still not what I really wanted. I, there was some, still more, more to learn, let's say. So after about a year of that firm, uh, I ventured out and started interviewing some of the larger firms. Uh, got hired at one, and it was Bear Stearns at that point, and no jokes, it's not why Bear Stearns went out of business. I came and I left long before any of that happened. But uh, when you go to a big firm like that and you get hired on as a as a trader, uh, before you can actually start trading, and th at this point you'd be trading totally their money, uh, you're working for them. But before you can start doing that, they want you to take a course uh, to teach you exactly what they do, how they do it, and that is what you will be doing and nothing else. So I went through the course, and as I'm going through this course, it's like uh, it's like a light bulb goes off in my head. And seeing exactly how they trade, and seeing that the possibilities that that it, it gives a trader, um, it 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 became so crystal clear that there are two such very different sides to the stock market. There's the retail side, which is how the brokerage firms want you to trade your money. For instance, you know which, which we discussed in the first half. You know a retail a retail client, let's say. And then there is the other side, the institutional side, the back office side, where the firms trade their own money. And what they do with their own money is so 180 degrees out from what they try to convince the clients to do with the client money, it's, it's, it's pathetic. Uh, there are two separate worlds uh, involved, and one is rigging the market against the the retail investor and the other one is raking in profits for the firm. Um, I remember back a while, uh, a few years ago, it's either Bear, no, I was either Morgan Stanley or, or uh, Goldman Sachs, one of the two, uh, the big whale fiasco uh, trading uh, debacle, and they got caught, they got convicted, and they got fined, and it was a massive number, uh, it, huge, huge number, and. Uh, I remember I, I read the article that that uh, whoever whatever whatever firm it was they said no problem we're just going to pay the fine, uh, it, and as it turned out it was basically like a week's trading for them and it was like 1.6 billion or something like that it was a massive amount of money, but uh, it was just a week's trading for them, and do you ever think that a week's trading for a retail client is going to produce that kind of money? Of course not because we're two totally separate different sets of rules, and uh, it's just. Uh, it's pathetic. So that's what we're going to cover in next week's show is my journey uh, through the uh, learning how to trade at the big firm and, and the, what that is really like. And it should really open your eyes to the possibilities. And again, 
hopefully in setting this up today and next episode, basically what we're doing is setting up a foundation. Just as with any good book, in the beginning there's always a preference section to where the author explains uh, his journey, what he learned, why he wrote the book, what his background is, and that's all we're doing here. Once we get past this, we're going to start getting into the technicals of actually how to trade, uh, and based on what I learned, and based which is based on what the firms do with their money. So then it should get pretty interesting, and that's where you're going to start learning how to have some pretty good secrets and tricks on how to how to trade and how to maneuver this market and put it in your favor for a change. So uh, with that said, I'd like to uh, thank you for joining us in this first episode. I'd encourage you to go to our website. That's theothersideofwallstreet.org. Theothersideofwallstreet.org. You can sign sign up for some good stuff, a free three-part mini course. Uh, you could listen to the promo for this radio show, which covers uh, some of the same stuff, but from a different perspective. Uh, anyway, sign up for something. Uh, give us your email address. Uh, you can join our trading tribe. That's a big part. And uh, with that, you're going to get uh, free, uh, be able, not free, you got to pay for it, but you, for that, you're going to get free weekly webinars and a lot of other additional benefits by belonging. Each week, we cover, we spend an hour on the webinar, and we cover almost all the, everything that you could possibly think of as far as training you how to trade like the firms do. So uh, again, that's the other side of wallstreet.org. Go on there, uh, check us out. Uh, Browse around, leave us your email address again, and uh, maybe sign up for again the Trading Tribe. Uh, it'll be well worth your, your your money. I believe it's uh, I believe it's forty nine dollars a month, but you get much more value than that out of it. So, uh, with that said, I think that's it for this week. Uh, thank you for joining us, and uh, we hope to see you back here next week where we're going to cover part two and then on to greater things after that. So, thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>